Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford and Salut Babette. We'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Beyond Zero Emissions is a think tank and our research into the society-wide transition we need to prevent catastrophic climate change is widely respected and in demand and this show gives a platform to activists. Tonight we'll talk about empathy, regeneration and understanding the often frightening emotions that arise from the climate emergency. The horrors of the 2019-2020 bushfires which peaked on New Year's Eve have left whole communities tossed about and grieving. Do we need a new thinking to help us grieve the death of the future we thought we had? I met our first guest shortly after those bushfires peaked at an Extinction Rebellion Deep Ecology workshop in Marrickville, Sydney. (coughs) So I'd like to introduce Karen Steiniger, who's also known as Raven. So welcome, Raven. Hello, Vivian. Great to be here. Oh, I'm, I think you have a lot to give to our audience. How are you feeling at the moment? I really, to be honest, I have been feeling a lot of deep anxiety, particularly with what's going on and particularly with the fires, is to be aware that these feelings are real and, and they, are, they are present. And so I've been, I've been feeling, yeah, deeply anxious and also with this kind of deep sense of of disbelief at the horror that seems to be barreling down towards us much faster than what I had, I had really thought it would be. Yes. Well, look, many of the people listening are courageous climate activists. I know some of them, and Bob Brown calls them brave hearts. I'd mm. like to know, how do you help people process the feelings, you know, of anger, even of paralysis and fear, as other people around them in society are sort of... Um, not in real clear denial, but just changing the subject if climate comes up? I think one thing is to be really aware that these emotions that we're feeling are real and also we're not alone in feeling them. I think really what we have is this sense of isolation and this fear that if we even begin to talk about it, we will be contributing to that sense of overwhelm and that sense that it is all too much. You know, particularly in our society, we, we, we need permission to speak, particularly about emotions. And, and I think, you know, as activists, um, we tend to kind of go from one uh, action to the next and feel as though if we, if, if we stop and if we actually sit and talk about our feelings of helplessness, that that somehow creates a kind of negativity that, that will stop us from being able to go on. When actually, when we can take a breath and acknowledge our feelings collectively, we realise that we're not alone. And we realise that our, and when we see our feelings reflected in each other, we realise that together we are, we are stronger than those, we're stronger than our doubts. Because like actually what's behind our feelings is our deep love for the earth, you know. So behind fear is courage and behind grief is love. And so when we do experience and acknowledge those, then we can can go on. At the workshop, you did a lovely ritual, and I'd like you just to describe the thinking behind it or just describe it for the audience. One one part of it was a stick, and I especially like that because I'm frightened of people who get angry. I always try to tamp down anger around me, but you said, hold the stick 
with two hands, don't wave it about. And that just symbolised to me how to be angry. You can be angry, but hold it firmly, know what you're doing, be in control. And there were other symbols, a little ritual. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was the, um, it's called, it's known as the Truth Mandala, which has been devised by an amazing um, system theorist and um, and uh, ecologist, Joanna Macy. And um, through this ritual, we use, it's a sacred space whereby truth can be told, and it's the truth of our emotions. And you spoke of anger, and anger is something that in our society we're taught to shy away from and to not express. But anger is really important, and it can be a really potent fuel. And particularly, um, you know, our anger that and outrage that stems from what needs to be spoken. And so that, that stick, you know, and you spoke about, you know, it's, it's, it's not for, for hitting or for kind of waving around. The stick itself, it's a part of a, you know, it's a part of a tree and so it's to, and it, it was strong enough to be held with both hands because it's that stick which is like, you know, the thirst for justice and that's really where, where our anger comes from often. What are the other symbols in that ritual? And, um, and the other symbol, there's a, there's, there's a stone. Is that, and that, that stone is for fear. And it's how our hearts feel when we're afraid, which is tight, contracted and hard. The other one is like there's dry leaves that represents our sorrow, our grief for what we see passing from us every day. And there is a, there's an empty bowl for our emptiness, for our sense of deprivation and need and our hunger for what is missing. And also there is, there is a, a, a cushion. In, within that circle, we speak, we are the voice of the voiceless. Well, I, I felt that was more powerful than any religious service. Well, some religious services were after the bushfires were very good too with song and quietness and chosen wise words. But that thing where each person had to express their mm. feelings relating to the objects, I felt that really got all of us together. My next question is about... And interconnectedness, you know, you emphasised that throughout. And I'd like to read a quote from Martin Luther King, which he was in prison and he had people had criticised him for coming to Alabama to interfere, you know, from they said he was an outsider. He, and he said, mm. we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied mm. in a single garment of destiny and what affects one directly affects all directly. And I think many listeners will have been accused of being outsiders meddling. You know, they've gone up to Queensland to stop Adani or they've gone to the Northern Territory to stop coal seam gas being fracked for short-term profit and laws are now being considered to ban such outsiders from getting mm. involved. And I'd like you to talk about how we are actually all insiders in the web of life and talk about the interconnectedness we could find. Oh, we are all we are all interconnected. I mean, really, a lot of this this work comes from deep ecology, which is a, a, a holistic approach that says that you know facing the world's problems needs a, a new paradigm, a new thinking, and that one is that says that that we are all a part of the whole. Every every part of us, like to to moving away from a human centered idea of, of of reality to the sense that humans are a part of the whole. And, you know, what affects one part affects us all. And, um, and so, you know, as, as activists on the land, we are, we are connected to the land. We are connected to sea and earth and sky. We are, we are a part of many. And by bringing that awareness to wherever we go, and, you know, whether or not we're actually 
from Sydney and going up to the, to the Bowen Basin and standing in solidarity with First Nations people and standing with of protecting the land. We are we are not outsiders. We are of the earth. No matter where we are, no matter where we stand on the earth, we are protecting the earth. And so whether or not we're, we're protecting up in up at the Adani coal mine, or whether or not we're going we're down in the Tarkine protecting the forest, or whether or not we're you know protecting our own patch, we are we are the earth protecting itself, and that's something that I think is really really fundamental to the change in paradigm which really serves us now. Because that sense that and that lie that we're told that we are separate is a lie that enables things to happen in our name that are, that is destroying the earth. So, you know, we are told that somehow we are disconnected from the forest and so therefore it's okay to cut down trees because whatever happens to the forest doesn't affect us. But mm. We, we know it does. If not us, then who? Well, you talked a bit about the bowl symbolising what we've lost and it seems to me that a new... I'm becoming aware myself. I don't know. I think other must be others are too. How much we've lost of what you might call Aboriginal knowledge and, you know, all around the world I've interviewed people from Alaska and from Indigenous people in Malaysia, for example, who, who just have cultivated themselves a knowledge or feel they belong to the earth rather than they own it. And I, I think that's been lost and I wonder, do you think we can regain that? Can we learn it? I heard an Aboriginal speaker last night and he, he said, we're not just going to give this knowledge to you, how to, you know, do cool fire burning or revegetate land or something, you know, it's, it's, it's a holistic and a, a humbling process, I feel. It has been lost because it's been, we've, we, we've been told this lie that, that we are separate. Plus also we've been told this lie that spirituality is somehow outside of us and connection with any kind of sense of other is in the realms of a hierarchical priest order. Being able to listen to the wisdom of the earth, that in our DNA, our ancestors knew that they were indigenous to the land. How natural it is for us, Westerners, who it's that thing about being given permission to imagine that we are connected to the world and to being given permission to imagine that we can hear wisdoms and insight from other beings like trees and rocks and sky mm. and or and, and that there is great wisdom when it comes for us to just simply listen and to put our egos to one side and our sense that we know and that chattering voice. How did you learn this? As a child, I always felt that I could listen to the voice of the wind and sea and sky. I would very much climb out my window and lie in the earth and stare up, stare up at the sky and, and just listen and I could I could hear the earth. Then as I grew up, I, I wanted to find my own tribe and so I began exploring eco-feminist spirituality and I began particularly delving into the works of a writer by the name of Starhawk and she wrote very, very... She writes very, very eloquently on our shared spirituality in that sense of the sacred with the earth. And that really, that then I felt as though you know, I am not just this lone, slightly bonkers kid mm -hmm. running around hugging, talking to trees. All of us have it. Well, at the end of the uh, Deep Ecology workshop you conducted, you did an exercise that's been pioneered by John Seed and Joanna Macy called Council of All Being. Mm. 
And um, I've interviewed people from Wild Law talking about, you know, those, there's a river in New Zealand that's now been given sort of legal status and the, the traditional people there are there to protect it. You tell us what the idea is behind that because, you know, we're facing a time where we're actually driving whole species and ecosystems to extinction, even certainly underwater ones that we've never heard mm. of. We haven't even labelled them yet and they'll be extinct. Who was involved in this workshop, in this um, exercise? Yeah, it uses the medium of a mask because a mask is it's a very, very profound um, artifact in which we play and so and so by putting on a mask we can pretend and you know and in using the, the, the spirit of play and pretend we can we can tr- transcend our own chattering brains we we, we seek an, an ally and um, and you know some of us spent 20 or 30 minutes in meditation other of us went were a little bit panicked and went oh gosh I haven't found anyone and just quietly put a paper plate on their face and turn their glasses around and, and then they were an ant how, whatever the process was in finding an ally, we all then created just simply just by our intention and, and saying that the space was sacred, that it was sacred. And so we, we, we sat around in a circle wearing masks and each of those masks was a representation of another being and that being could have been a mountain or a tree or an ant or a log or a worm or soil itself. It's always really profound and things that come through are just completely surprising. Hearing the, the, the perspective of a worm gives you an insight into what it is that is beneath our feet, for instance. What do you feel now coming back to climate action, this emergency? I've just been to a climate emergency summit in Melbourne and mm. all sorts of solutions are being put forward. It is very linear and rational and what do we do about it? I also heard Charlie Veron talking about the death of the corals. You know, he really, he's, mm. you know, it was d- dreadful to see a man of his age saying, in my lifetime, I've seen half of what I mm. knew and thought was mm. indestructible just go. What message do you have for people who are engaged in climate action and see it as an emergency and are on it nearly all the time? What do you want to say to them? I would say to them, bravo, good on you fantastic you know amazing amounts of love and courage i would also say to them that they are not alone and that when they have those moments of deep deep grief and overwhelm like we all do just to remember to to sit on the earth put their feet on the earth because they are supported by worm by grass by the land and they are seen by all the beings uh, with us in this fight. Like we are not, we are such a part of the interconnectedness of all things that all we need to do is kind of lean into life and life leans back towards us. And as well to think that what we're doing is sacred work. So, you know, we are, as activists, we are sacred activists because we are, we are life defending itself. And that's, that's why we do what we do. So that was Raven, who conducts Deep Ecology Workshops, and she made a lovely list for us of books and things to look at, including that book by Joanna Macy called Active Hope, and I'll attach that to the podcast. So thank you, Raven. Brilliant. Thank you. Bye-bye. After talking to Raven, I thought it would be interesting to hear an Aboriginal perspective. This was at a 
session called Bushfires and the Climate Crisis, How Do We Make 2020 a Transformative Year for All Creation, given by the Interfaith Centre of Melbourne at St Michael's Uniting Church in uh, Collins Street. And the person was uh, a Wiradjuri man. He's the priest, uh, Anglican priest at St Oswald's in Glen Iris. His name is Glenn Loughry. I think I've been given a very simple task. I am to cover 60,000 years of Aboriginal land care in 10 minutes. Not impossible, but highly improbable, really. And it's an interesting issue that we are often asked as Aboriginal people to have a voice on matters such as this, and yet at the same time, it's highly unlikely that we'll have Margaret an Australian Aboriginal Prime Minister anytime soon because we can't even get a voice. On terms, in terms of land care and in terms of what has gone in the past and what happens in the future, I can only say how we as Aboriginal people see it out of our own Aboriginality. There is no Aboriginal spirituality. You are Aboriginal comes pre-packaged in your body because you are born out of the ground under a tree. You are born on country and you bring with you all the wisdom, the knowledge, the experience of everything that has gone before you that is in the ground underneath your body. sometimes BCP before Cook and Philip, um, there were a practice, was a practice that when babies were born they were laid on the ground while the mother went to another place and the aunties looked after her. And there was a simple process you modern people will understand, you would probably call it uploading the software. It was making sure that the hardware got the information it needed that the body bonded with the earth beneath it. And it was at peace with it in case that child did not live for a long period, but had had everything that it needed to be fundamentally alive. Because we're born under a tree, out of the ground, we carry the country in our body. It is why things like the bushfires cause us much deep grief because it is the burning of our own existence. It's the scorching of the, of the earth on which, from which we are made. And it is the scorching of our kin. Our kin is not simply human beings, those who are related to us through elaborate and very complex and complicated kinship networks, but it is the animals, the birds, the waterways, the mountains, the valleys, the insects, they're our kin. They are part of our kinship network because how we understand it is that we are indigenous of the universe. We are of our entire world. We hold the entire universe in our bodies and our bodies are held in the entire universe. For us, how we see it is our universe is as far as you can see in any direction, up, down and around. 
And that is what we have the custodial ethic or the vocation that to look after. One of the mindsets that has to happen if we are going to make any changes to how we live in this country is that we must forget that it's about human beings. We must forget it's about eternal progress. We must forget it's about a straight line. We must forget it's about providing us with everything that we desire. If we're going to live our vocation, we must learn to live out of a custodial ethic. When I say, you often hear the words, you know, the um, continuing custodians of the country. What that means is not that we have dominion over the country, but that we live in a res with responsibility in a reciprocal relationship with all of our kin, our cousins in this space. We are to care for everything that is here and everything here has to care for us. Now that caring will be done in a different way. Trees don't care like humans. Trees care in a tree kind of way. Rivers care in a riverish type of way. They are song lines, they are connections. What is above the ground is beneath the ground. What is in, in the ground, above the ground is in the sky. These are not separate bodies, they're all connected. And a song line that runs through, runs through like a wave, thin, that goes from the top to the bottom. So if you, and the song lines are indigenous knowledge systems, that's how our knowledge is given. We go along those song lines and we discover the truths about certain things in certain places and we put those patterns together and we make connections and we understand how the world works. If you mine it, you cut down through the song line and you stop the flow of information and knowledge. It comes to a gap. Where does it go? What happens to it? Can it go under? Can it go over? Can it go around? Often it doesn't, it just stops. And that's why we have the dysfunction in communities in people and in our land. That is why our land is unable to provide us the things we want it to do because we've cut its capacity to talk to one another. My father would say you walk your country every day. We had two and a half thousand acres, he never had a tractor. He only worked on it, he wasn't, didn't own it. Because Aboriginal people weren't allowed to buy farms. Um, he worked on it, but he never had a, a, a truck or a ute or a car or anything. He walked it, two and a half thousand acres, and he walked it every day in some direction. He said, if you walk it and you listen carefully, it'll tell you what it needs, what you need and what you need to do. He'd also say, once farming becomes a business, a catastrophe is inevitable because you're wanting it to produce what it's not capable of doing. So the way to look at some of these things from an Aboriginal point of view is that we need, need to recalibrate our worldview. Be happy with less. When people talk about, for example, 
cool burning and how that saved Aboriginal people. Yeah, it did. Sort of. Kind of. But it only meant that we were, what we were doing with cool burning over a long, long period of time was to developing pastures from which we could guarantee resources when we returned. And that those resources had what they needed so that when we came back they'd be there. Okay? We weren't doing cool burning to stop bushfires. We were doing cool burning to develop our resources for survival and so those resources could survive themselves. We didn't do cool burning in bush in, in, up in the scrub in the mountains. If that got hit with the lightning and the fire started, we just said, it'll burn out. And it did. We didn't build houses up there, even when we built houses, we didn't build them up there. We weren't committed to possession, so if the fire became a risk, we just moved. There is much that we have to learn and to think about, and it's challenging stuff. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Rita Gyorfi is with us to talk about building a culture of empathy. I met her at a regeneration culture event for Extinction Rebellion, and I wanted to find out how she organises an empathy cafe. One of the main groups of people in the audience I'm pitching this particular show to is the young people who tell me quite often how much, especially since the bushfires, they're telling me how much despair they feel, how much anxiety they feel that government won't come to rescue us or protect us in any way or put in place the right things, that sort of anxiety. And also they just feel powerless themselves. And yeah. I wonder how would you, if that came up in an empathy cafe, how would that um, structure around the empathy cafe help them? The phrase non-violent communication is also known as compassionate communication. It was a term coined by someone called Marshall Rosenberg from the state. Um, and he, you know, developed a uh, form of communication um, around really identifying our feelings, our needs, um, and creating requests around that, which really empowers us to, you know, understand our inner landscape about um, really what's happening because so often we get stuck in just at the surface level in like, oh, I'm overwhelmed or I'm in fear or I'm in anger and then, you know, don't really get to unfold and unfurl the feelings underneath or even just to like be with them. Because we don't necessarily need to like know or understand everything that we're feeling. It's not really about analysing. Um, it's actually about allowing ourselves to just acknowledge the feeling. Because, um, you know, on another note, the um, Australian Psychological Association, the APS, has also, um, you know, I think quite a few years ago now put out a... Um, a document about how to um, nurture empowerment in the climate um, climate emergency that we're facing, mm-hmm. and they have their own model as well. And you know, one of their core things is about acknowledging the feelings, and that being a very healthy thing to do. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the word needs there, and I think yeah. you can touch on the feelings. I'm feeling overwhelmed, or I'm feeling despair. But mm-hmm. how do you then? 
in a, in a, it can often be quite a futile discussion. You know, you, the two people just reinforce themselves in how bad the situation is. So how would you get down to what that person needs? Yeah, well, um, so first of all, I guess identifying feelings and needs is, um, can be on a personal level. If I understand what I'm feeling and needing in any conversation, then I can be empowered to um, understand what I may do about it. And that may or may not be, um, you know, up to somebody else. It's really something I can empower myself around. And then, you know, if I'm also in a triggering or a challenging situation where I'm having a challenging conversation with someone else, if I've given myself empathy and I can feel grounded, then I can also kind of ask myself, hmm, what is this person telling me that they might feel and, and need? And the needs really come down to the five basic needs that Maslow speaks about in his hierarchy of needs. I guess like the basic need is like the physical of shelter, food, water, air, physical needs. The next level is safety, so creating our own sense of safety, which is also physical, emotional, mental safety. Um, the third level is uh, a sense of belonging, so we all need to be able to belong and feel like we fit in our society somewhere because we're quite social creatures. Uh, the fourth one is about esteem and identity. Um, so we need to have a sense of our purpose and, you know, solidity and confidence in who we are mm. and what we can do in the world or how we can contribute. And, um, yeah, the last level is about self-actualization and, like, that, the affecting of that contribution in the world. So really reaching our full potential and coming into our wholeness. So in an empathic conversation, you might reflect back to the other person what you think they need. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of about um, guessing feelings and needs. So there's something called the empathic listening ladder, and the guessing feelings and needs is really like the, the top end skill of the empathic listening ladder. It takes a little while to kind of switch the filters on in our ears in terms of like listening from an empathic place and we are really just guessing someone else's feeling and need and we might not actually like say oh are you feeling sad right now because it might be quite touchy to you know name someone else's feeling so you might just guess that a little bit in your own mind and and you might just focus on guessing the need oh I do need a bit of rest right now or is it space that you might needing or is it comfort? You might even skip the need entirely and just kind of focus on the request. Okay, what is like the action that, um, and who is the person that is going to be doing the action? Is it you or do you need to ask for support? Mm. This takes me, I've got a hypothetical example that I've read about a lot just recently. I think like some of the bushfire guys leave firefighters and even people in the community totally exhausted you know they've been acting on the adrenaline they've been working as well a lot of those people were farmers who were also farming and then going out and fighting fires and they just kept going no one could have believed it would have gone on for so long but a lot of them must be at an absolute low point and I read in the paper they said that often people are too exhausted to reach out there are services but they're too tired to reach out and I wondered how just an ordinary citizen just how could you reach into them to prevent them going into the worst spiral of post-traumatic stress or total isolation and loneliness 
Yeah, well, I guess I feel like I need to state a caveat that I've, um, I'm a counsellor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a trauma expert. No. But I have been informing myself a bit from different experts that I've heard through the Australian Bush Adventure Therapy. They had a session about, um, you know, what it's actually like for people, uh, firefighters or just community members that are within the fires and how trauma is affecting people who even have counselling experience and psychological experience. And, uh, they really suggested a few things. So one is um, if someone is really in a uh, trauma situation where, like, you know, they're kind of still in, like, a very high level of shock, they might be finding it tricky to even um, fathom what they might do about uh, cleaning up their property or yeah. they're having trouble even just fathoming like how to function normally in life. That's a very different level. People at that level um, might not be able to really kind of process their feelings and need because their whole body is kind of in a state of shock still mm -hmm. and um, really to just get their somatic or their body like moving and helping them um, with doing practical things around their property might be the best thing and I think that's from my understanding that's the kind of stuff that um, Blaze Aid and other organisations like that are doing you know they're going to people's properties and they're actually going okay what do you need to do cool I can see you need help with this I'm just going to help you with that from an empathic point of view really just being so super kind and being with what is what what is coming up in, in the person, whether they're in high, high trauma or not, or whether they're, you know, in high levels of anxiety or lower levels of anxiety or anger. Or the biggest skill is just, like, being with what is and accepting that as, like, a normal part of the, the processing that um, their being and body is doing. Because the ultimate underlying foundational thought there is that humans has agency and you know our whole body is an intelligent being you know it's not just the brain and the mind that healing can heal it's like the whole body so it's like it knows what to do so that intrinsic knowing is within that person somewhere and so just to support that process to unfold that's really that interesting. Yeah, it does make yeah. sense. It's helpful. I'll just tell the listeners, Rita said if the best thing to do would be to first have a little practice. So I'm going to be like Michael Mosley. I'm going to subject myself to this um, <laughs> nonviolent communication, which sounds very soothing anyway. Rita, could you have a little mini, just have a little conversation with me and then tell the listeners what you're doing or, you know, object, you know, step sure, in and um, out of being my empathy listener and then be the an, an, analyst of it. Okay, so the question I'm going to pose to you, um, Vivian, is what is alive for you right now in the climate and ecological emergency? Um, alive for me right now is the worry I have about people giving up and being in despair. Okay, so yeah, I'm hearing that uh, there's something around like people being in despair that's really affecting you. Is that correct? Yes, because I feel I need to cheer them up and I come out with all these positive solutions because I've been doing this radio. I have been thinking about climate change for so long, but some people are kind of just waking up and going, oh, my God, and, you know, especially the animals, that's worried them. And I 
I, there's an element even of irritation with me. I just feel like, oh, come on, just mm. embrace it and get into the action. Ah, uh, okay, right. So I'm hearing that um, you've, you've been immersed in this world for quite a while and a part of you really feels like you want to cheer other people up. Not really cheer them up, but activate okay. them, sort of mobilise them, you know, get them to, you know, I feel like saying there's no time for despair, let's be brave, you know. Yeah. Because they're all the groups that I, I mostly talk to, the active groups, they are just like that, they are brave. Ah, okay, yeah. So you really want um, to somehow, like, either tell or motivate people to be brave. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering what, what would that look like for you if you were to do that? Well, a lot more energy. I feel people who tell me this are kind of almost lethargic, you know, they're almost limp with what they're feeling and I think energetic would be, would be a sign of uh, getting involved. So you'd really like to see a lot more people around you be energetic in, in you know, their action for... Yes. Of the climate. What would that really look like for you if you were to inspire people? What is your role in this that you would oh. um, really, really be excited to be a part of? Well, I don't know. You see, this is what I do on the radio all the time, but I don't yeah. know. It might even be a turn off to people, me being enthusiastic and lots of solutions and lots of things happening. I try to give this impression that the mainstream media doesn't give, that there's actually a lot of uh, grassroots groups. It's a huge movement, really. And um, I don't think I perhaps talk about it the right way, but I I don't know what it would look like because obviously if I did, I'd do it. It sounds like to me that, like, you know, you're, I can hear the passion in your voice and, um, you know, you're really, like, searching around to see how you can inspire people, you know, to, to make a difference and that there's a part of you that's perhaps a bit uncertain. Yes, and you said before, like sitting with, uh, just being with whatever comes up. So if what is coming up for them is despair and desolation, I find it very hard to just sit with that. I want to make it better. And I, I kind of know that's wrong because I wouldn't like anyone to do that to me in a way, but I do do that. Ah, uh, okay. So you can see there's kind of two parts of yourself. One that really wants to make something better in others mm. so that they don't, so that like their pain is maybe not as hard to mm. feel. Mm. And another part of you can acknowledge that that's actually perhaps not as useful because you wouldn't like that for mm. someone else to do that to you. That's right. So I think that was about five minutes. So I guess I was combining a few things there. There were times when I was just um, directly repeating some of the exact words that you shared with me. And as you may have noticed, like I didn't repeat everything that you said. So um, at times I was just kind of paraphrasing and then asking if that sounded right for you. One thing I also noticed is that at one point I did repeat what you said and then you corrected me. You said, actually, no, that's not what I was thinking. It was something else. Mm. And that, that's perfect. So in this kind of skill, it's good if you get it wrong as well, because it helps the speaker to clarify what they actually mean. Yeah. So the, the biggest purpose of this technique is to allow people to hear back at them what they've said and then to let that land and for them to provide a space for the, the person who's speaking to go deeper in their understanding of what's actually 
real for them. In our conversation, like I heard you say that you're already doing quite a lot and you can acknowledge that and you can acknowledge these two parts of yourself, one that, oh, is really like, you know, in pain when they feel someone else in pain and that's actually a beautiful part, you know, that means that we're human and we care. And, you know, the other part is kind of saying, well, actually, maybe I just need to like learn to be okay with their sadness or whatever feeling is coming up. So those are kind of the things that I would have, you know, picked out in terms of the, the skills that I was attempting to share. But yeah. how was it for you being on the receiving end? Well, it's good because, it, as you say, you, you move along in your thinking rather than being stuck in it. And mm-hmm. uh, I can see it in a different a different light. It's actually quite it's positive. I'd like to thank you for doing that. And Rita, okay. I can if you could find that poem, you know, the brave space. Oh, yes. What is safe space? Together we will create brave space because there's no such thing as safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. This is the safe space poem by Mickey Scott. I'm on the uh, lawns of Canberra and we've just been on a, at a, a citizens' assembly on mental health and climate change and one of the people there made a very interesting comment about the way to make mental health professionals much more available to people. Uh, my name's Sebastian Rosenberg. I'm from the Centre for Mental Health Research at the Australian National University. Uh, just the point I was raising was that um, structures for engaging uh, health professionals are very difficult and um, one of the most stark examples about how in adversity uh, things can change and access can be made more easy was actually after the um, Christchurch uh, earthquake when uh, there literally weren't functioning hospitals and functioning clinics and so on and yet there were still of course many people who needed assistance not just uh, people with mental illness uh, who already were in care but of course a whole range of uh, new clients of people who had trauma and needed mental health support urgently and what happened was that uh, mental health services migrated from their offices uh, from appointment times uh, from uh, traditional ways of working in, 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 uh, in clinics when health professionals and where health professionals work generally separately uh, and instead health services, mental health services congregated in places where people could find them. They congregated in the park and in other public spaces and so particularly for people with complex conditions they obviously they often need uh, multidisciplinary care and rather than having to hop from one appointment to another, one fee-for-service payment to another, one side of town to another, they could find all the help they needed in one place. And sure enough, rates of access to mental health care went up, not down. At the time when beds were not available, clinics were closed, hospitals were shut, rates of access went up. And I think it's that kind of 
thinking about what we need to do to restructure our health services, our health system, what constitutes our health system, to re-engage or engage for the first time people like peers in the provision of structured mental health care and support to augment the work that our health professionals do and to change the location, change the way those services are provided to make it easier for people to get care. And uh, I, I think that what this summer has shown us is that uh, we can't afford to wait any longer for redesign, fundamental redesign of our mental health system if we're going to meet the challenges that climate change um, throws up. Well, you said that the bushfires are like a slow-moving earthquake. And would you say that, from what you've seen, people in those affected areas who are still waiting for the next bushfire, I mean, we're not through the bushfire season, you know, the length and breadth of Australia, really, huge geographical area of people affected. Perhaps a lot of them were holiday girls. They'll have all gone back to their cities now. But do you think the services have reached out to them or are they adequate or something in this particular emergency needs to be done? So I think there's real issues about access to mental health care services. Um, so we fairly recently, in 2006 or so, put um, psychology services under Medicare and there's some evidence that's been produced by the government to suggest that um, the rates of access to care have lifted and now it's up at around 46%, something like that. But that's still, if you think about it, it leaves 54% of people not cared for. Now that's, that's before... A climate crisis. That's before a bushfire crisis. Uh, I'm actually speaking today uh, with my house under tarpaulin in Canberra having been destroyed or the roof being destroyed by the recent hailstorm as well as my car. Um, you know, this is something which is now affecting everybody in different ways and to different extents. And again, it just means that um, looking to try to address Um, So the mental health system, as it's currently constituted, is patently failing to meet um, uh, desirable access rates to care. Uh, We need to also be thinking carefully about the quality of the mental health care that's provided. Um, Is it actually helping? Are we doing what we need to do to check whether it's helping people? Um, So uh, we need to fundamentally shift the way we think about things and... uh, the mental health system was has generally been characterised as being in crisis through repeated inquiries and so on over the last 20, 30 years. Um, what this current uh, situation, what this summer has shown us is that we need to, to do a lot more to fundamentally reorient our system. What would you like to see? Like, it doesn't sound like you want to fund more mental health beds or more people in remote offices. You want to fund people out there in the field. Is that what you want to see? Like in a crisis, in the, say, six months following a crisis... Um, look, there's a, a mixture of things which are going to be needed to, to happen. Uh, obviously, there's a, a, a need for some uh, clinical services and support, particularly for people who are going through trauma and so on. Uh, but what I think we really need to do is to... Well, we need to do what was fundamentally first promised in 1992 in the first National Mental Health Strategy, which was to begin the process of shifting from acute and hospital-based services to earlier intervention in the community. And this is a shift which, frankly, has never occurred. Uh, despite what people may think, we are still an extremely and extraordinarily hospital and acute-focused um, mental health service, and this change is long overdue. And so um, we need to get on with it. Professor Helen Berry is an expert in climate change and mental health. Welcome, Helen. I met you in Canberra at the People's Assembly 
and there were bushfires still raging nearby and smoke billowing towards the lawns of federal parliament. All the other people on the panel told us that you were the real thing and you were contributing to the Lancet countdown on health and climate change, especially mental health. So now we've had some rain and bushfires and drought are out of the news, but I think you would still be worried about the you know, post-traumatic response to that massive fire over such a huge area. Could you tell us what you predict and what you worry about? I've been hearing a lot of talk about, oh, you know, this is the new normal, we're going to have to get used to this. And, and I'm thinking this isn't the new normal. This is nowhere near as bad as it's going to be unless we act incredibly quickly and aggressively on uh, reducing our carbon emissions, building the technologies we need to deal with a situation that will be far worse than the one we've just had. The thing that struck me about the fires was that they were all joined up and the services were saying that they couldn't, you know, for example, send their firemen up to Queensland or down to um, South Australia because they were already occupied here. And I feel that that might be the same with other services like mental health outreach services that... I'm thinking in the long term, climate change is going to bring us these joined up catastrophes and that normal thing of sharing resources and and going out and going to the the dramatic place is not going to be possible. Even the journalists won't cover it. They can't cover it all. And so they just sort of recoil and, and can't cover it. And that feeling, I want for the future to know what do you think what system changes would be good and, and the, to make these communities who are going to ex- see this again, this will happen again, the floods and the fires, are, with the climate change that's already locked in, we're going to see these things again. What's, what sort of interventions for mental health to prepare people and make them bolster that resilience that they've got would you like to see? Well, you're exactly right. We are going to experience more and more joined-up disasters, so it's not just things like fires breaking out in relatively close to one another and joining up. Um, it's not just that geographic type of stuff. It's also that, that, they, that they come one after the other. So, so after horrific bushfires, then came huge flooding. Now, for some people in some areas, that was enormously welcome and everyone has breathed a huge sigh of relief that the drought is broken in so many parts of the country and that, um, and that the fires have been put out by rain. So that's wonderful. But, but for those who experienced fires then flooding that's not wonderful at all from the point of view of their capacity to cope because each of those things on their own were catastrophic and almost impossibly difficult to deal with without significant physical and mental health effects and having them come one after the other and this is the future of climate change if we don't act really strongly right now it's more and worse of this kind of thing So what we've seen this summer is just the beginning of what the future looks like. So when we think about mental health, you know, most mental health problems arise from people's environmental circumstances. So that's the physical environment that they live in, the built and natural environment, and the social and cultural and political environment they live in. And to protect people strongly and in the long term and build long-term resilience, we have to deal with the factors in those environments that are not working for people. And, um, and it's very tempting to think, well, if we're going to have all these extra disasters, we've got to be quickly training more psychiatrists and mental health nurses and all the rest of it. And we probably actually do need some more of that kind of resource because that resource is already too little anyway. But the most important thing that we need to be doing right now is strengthening our society and our communities 
and that means addressing issues like growing inequality, growing poverty, you know, growing gap between the rich and poor, where we have a, a growing group of or proportion of the population which is struggling, and uh, and a group uh, at the other end with increasingly obscene wealth that isn't being shared. So that kind of thing has to be addressed. We have to address the trustworthiness of government and politicians so that people can begin to trust what they say and cooperate with them. We have to engage in the process of addressing the underlying causes of global warming and we need to engage the Australian population in that work because one of the most important ways to help protect people's mental health in the face of what gets called an existential threat like climate change is to give people the opportunity to act and to do so effectively in a way that can help them to what's coming and also mitigate it getting any worse. I interviewed the people after the Tathra bushfires and one of the councillors there from Bega Valley Council, she said she was having a sort of oral oral history group for people to tell their story, to individually to tell their stories. And this group met every week and they were, I don't know how it was going to turn out to be a, an exhibition with artwork as well or something, but she said it was very helpful for those who wanted to tell other people, just didn't want to think about it anymore, but still the telling and the supportive environment really helped that little community just hang in there and they're famous in that area for being very on the front foot with confronting climate change. So I read in your um, article, you sent me an article called The Pearl in the Oyster about a, a Canadian group of very uh, marginalised people who really weren't working together well as a community and the psycho psychological problems they had there were just getting worse and worse but there was an intervention there called The Road. Could, could you tell us a bit about that? you know, community building that would in fact have a psychiatric yeah. flow on. I love the story because it's the story of a young psychiatrist, Alexander Layton and his wife, and he was sent to a small community in um, Canada where, and he was supposed to be the psychiatrist for this community and go and treat people's mental health problems because their mental health problems were off the scale. And so off he goes as a young man and... And, you know, goes his wife with him and, and thinking, oh, well, you know, he gets there and starts doing what psychiatrists do. And within no time at all, he realised, that they both realised, that there was no possibility of introducing any psychiatric care until the issues in the, the major issues in community functioning were addressed. So he set about doing that, thinking, well, I've got to clear some of this rubble, uh, you know, psychiatric rubble out of the way, if you like, before we can really get on to doing the psychiatric services. And so he established, and nobody would speak to him, and there was violence and conflict and complete lack of trust even in each other and certainly of strangers in the, town, in, the, in the village. So it took him ages to get together a little group of people to talk to about this, but eventually he managed and, um, and started a conversation about what they'd like to work on first. To his surprise, they said they wanted to be able to show movies in the community, which, of course, in the 1920s were new and everyone was doing it and wanting it, and, of course, they, they had no way of doing that. So he thought, well, okay, this is, you know, I would have expected them to choose something else, but if this is what they want, fine, let's do that. So he organised a project for them to do that and help them answer all kind of questions like, well where are you going to show the movies? And um, so they decided they had a little community hall, so they decided they'd do it there. 
so the next problem was the community hall didn't have electricity so they had to figure out how to get electricity connected to the community hall and that involved raising some money so then they had to raise money within the community to figure out how to do that of course they had no idea how to do any of these things and were in constant conflict with each other and couldn't manage a project couldn't manage money couldn't plan couldn't do anything so he um, supported them to learn all those skills and they did raise enough money to put some uh, electricity on in the hall and they had and then they could have movies so they succeeded in that after a huge long um, sort of effort and then wonderful thing happened was that in the process of doing that they learned all these skills of cooperating to achieve a project that was for the benefit of the community in general so they learned a stack of really useful skills they also developed some preliminary trust in each other and confidence in each other and some ideas of reciprocity you know that they they could help each other and trust someone to help them if they they offered help and started to you know have some feelings of care for each other and warmth and as it happened they had some money left over from what they raised they didn't need quite what they raised for the electricity so they were then able to go through a conversation about what they'd spend this next bit of money on and um and from then on, the process of the community coming together to do these kinds of projects for itself as a whole fed up. And, and it got to the point where the community looked and felt exactly like any other community in that area. Um, there were no visible signs of that community being disadvantaged in any way, and it wasn't. And lo and behold, by the time he got to that point, um, the rates of psychiatric disorders had, had shriveled to no more than normal in any area. And climate change, in a way, is a real opportunity because it's one of the things, one of the very few things that really could pull people together over the long term. So that was Professor Helen Berry. She's a very top expert in climate change and mental health. Tonight you've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. We've been talking about empathy, guarding a brave space, and mental health for people affected by the emergencies that climate change is now bringing thick and fast to our communities. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Raven, who did a deep ecology workshop in Sydney, Glenn Loffrey, who's an Anglican minister and a Wiradjuri man, who is talking about protecting the land, Rita Gyofi, who conducts empathy cafes in Melbourne, and has some ideas for us about how to communicate in a non-violent way that facilitates emotion and empathy. Dr Sebastian Rosenberg from the ANU about the Christchurch model of delivering mental health care in a much more accessible and quick and urgent way. And Dr Helen Berry, who's a top expert in mental health, um, has written for The Lancet and is you know, a great asset to our community. I'd like to thank Michaela for helping me put this show to air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Hal, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. 
Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Oh, my God. 